Hey, it's Angel, your friendly neighborhood doula. I'm so excited to have you here on the Birth Cafe podcast, where I'll talk about all things birth, postpartum, and pregnancy. As a certified doula, lactation counselor, and perinatal educator, I'm here to provide you with evidence-based information on interesting topics while also having fun and open conversations about the perinatal period. This podcast is for parents and birth professionals alike, and I hope that you enjoy what you hear. So grab your favorite cup of tea or coffee, sit down, get comfy, and let's get started. Hi everyone, my name is Angel Coleman and welcome back to my video podcast, The Birth Cafe. I am so freaking excited to have Emily on here. She is amazing. She's so smart and she's very, very talented and passionate about what she does in the birth world. So let's welcome Emily. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, and even if you want to share like how you got into birth work, that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Angel. I love all the work that you have been doing to provide resources and access to the community um, when it comes to birth and especially your postpartum resourcing as well. You know how that important that is to you. So thank you for having me come on. Uh, my name is Emily. My business name is Serving Tomorrow Birth Services because I just believe that when we are serving families in their birth, we're really changing their future as well as the future for the generations to come. So that's kind of where that tomorrow comes into my, my business name. Um, so I am a mother of two. I have two boys, a three-year-old and a 20-month-old, and we live in Fort Worth, Texas where it's currently over 100 degrees. Um, so it's very hot. <laughs> but I am a birth doula, a postpartum doula, and a childbirth educator, um, as well as wrapping up my placenta encapsulation certification. So be able to add that uh, resource in for clients here soon. Um, I got into birth work in in a very normal, but maybe less than normal way. So I had doulas with both of my births. I had a in-hospital Pitocin induction with my first birth. I had an out-of-hospital precipitous labor with my second birth. Um, and in both, my, my doulas were really integral to um, my feelings of safety and support and calmness and confidence in all of my births. Um, and I was a stay-at-home mom, and I was really feeling the itch that I actually wanted to go back to work, but I didn't know what that looked like. We had just moved across country. Um, I wasn't ready to go back completely full time yet. I was really struggling to find what a good fit would be for me. And it was actually my personal doula and birth photographer for my second birth that said, why don't you become a birth educator? You are really good at talking about it. You, are, you can tell that like teaching is just part of um, your personality. I think you would be a really good fit for it. You don't have to be on call. Um, that's a big plus side of being an educator. And so I started with childbirth education. Um, and after a while, I had to do some birth observations and I really realized that being in the birth space was exhilarating for me and where um, a lot of my heart lied as far as birth work goes. Um, and so I was a little disappointed that on-call life was not available to me and my family dynamic at the time. Um, but then my students and class started asking if I would be their doula. And I was like, I'm not an actual doula yet, though, guys. And um, and that didn't matter, right? It doesn't, uh, a piece of paper doesn't make you a doula. The fact that they felt safe with me, supported with me, um, made me a good fit as a doula for them. And so I started um, attending the birth of a, of a student of mine. And that's when I decided I'm just going to go for it. If this is where I'm being led, if this is where people are asking me to support them in their lives, then I'm going to find a way. 
So I got certified so that I could support both in and out of hospital births. At this time in Texas, there was still restrictions on who was having to be certified to go into a hospital. So I had to go get my papers. And so I got my papers and um, have been doulaing pretty much full time since then. Wow, that is so awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us today. Um, and Emily, I don't know if you know this, but maybe I've mentioned to you that I am actually uh, a vaginal birth after two C-section mama. Um, I had uh, two babies um, after my two C-sections, uh, both of them special in their own way, but I had those two C-sections um, and my babies were both premature, so 31 weeks. So not only <laughs> did I have to deal with, you know, having those C-sections, um, and needing them for, um, some, a, a big reason. So I had placenta previa with my, uh, second and third baby. Um, I not only had to deal with learning about C-sections, but I kind of lost that goal of, oh my gosh, like, Am I going to have a vaginal birth if I want more kids? And I had two C-sections in a row. So when I got pregnant with my fourth, I was so determined <laughs> to make sure that I would get my V back. And so I will probably share a little bit more of my story as we kind of go on and we talk about it. But I know that you created a special slide set for us to discuss. So um, do you want me to bring it up or are you going to bring it up? Go ahead. Okay. I, I'm not as familiar with this platform as you are, so I'm going to try okay. to not mess things up and let you go for it. But I just want to, I mean, clap. Hell yeah, you did that. Like, congratulations. That is such a feat. Um, and we'll get into it later, but the fact that you had two C-sections and were still um, a V-backer just goes to show that more than one does not exclude you from this you know, eligibility of a VDAC. So good Absolutely. job. Absolutely. And thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. So I'm going to pull this up real quick for her and we're going to get started. Okay. Awesome. Can you see it okay? Yeah, I sure can. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's one on there about me introducing myself. So you slide past that. Okay. Okay. Perfect. All right. Whenever you're ready, do you want me to go to the next slide? Yep, go ahead. Okay, perfect. So basically what we're going to do, what I'd like to share um, during our time, I could talk about this for hours, but I'm going to keep it condensed to our time frame. Um, we're going to go through um, kind of the five things that I think can make or break your VDAC. Um, the first, I'm going to walk you through some statistics, some background on where we are in this country right now when it comes to VDAC. Um, I think understanding where the fear of VDAC comes from when it comes to obstetrics, like why do some providers not want to do VDAC? Where did the big scary um, kind of emotion around VDAC come from? Um, when we understand the history of where that's coming from, it kind of disarms it. Um, and then I'm also going to walk through uh, some of the statistics on risks of VDACs versus risks of repeat cesareans. I think it's important to know both sides of the story when making your choices. Um, we're going to go through who should be on your VDAC birth team and who should not be on your VDAC birth team. We'll talk about some options for body work and why that's important, as well as emotional work and preparing for multiple kind of outcomes with your birth and why that's also important. So if that sounds good to you, feel free to interject at any point through this, but if that sounds good to you, we can get started. Pass that. That's just me. Okay. So I think the first step um, to deciding if VDAC is right for you and also setting the foundation for a strong, um, strong VDAC experience is knowing the statistics, knowing that VDAC is safe, VDAC works. The numbers are in your favor if you choose to VDAC. So let's take a look at the history of, of where did this come from. 
So in the 1970s, in the very beginning, our cesarean rate was only one to 5% in this country, like super, super low. Now, is that necessarily a good thing? Maybe not. Like we know that maybe a little bit more than 1% actually helps save lives. And so we want more than 1%, um, but it was it is well below um, where we are today. But then from 1970s until 1980s, there was a dramatic rise in just one decade where our cesarean rate went up to 23% within 10 years. Um, and so when we saw that happen, there was a bigger population of people who would be considered VDAC, right? So as we moved into the 90s, a lot more people were VDACing, um, or at least attempting a VDAC, and that peaked at about 28% um, VDAC rate. So that's 28% of the 23% who had a cesarean for their previous birth were going for a VDAC. Um, but at the same time, sometimes, okay, so sometimes insurance required this in the 90s. VDAC was very much the first plan of action uh, in the 90s. But we started seeing really high rates of rupture, uterine rupture. And this is when that scar, the incision, pulls apart, right? Um, and so in 1999, in response to that, ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, said, you can VDAC, but where you're VDACing must have 24-7 access to anesthesia to be considered within guidelines. So when that came out, people kind of panicked and everybody was like, shut it down. We're rupturing all the time. We have to have this access to 24-7 anesthesia. This is obviously a very scary thing. And the VDAC rate plummeted to about 9.2% by 2004. There were hospital bans in about 30% of the hospitals in the U.S. that just said, we do not do VDAC. And then an additional 14% of hospitals in the U.S. just simply didn't have access to 24-7 anesthesia. And so while it wasn't considered a ban, it was a ban because they didn't have that access and would not be considered within ACOG guidelines. So up to about 44% of hospitals were not even offering VDAC um, in those early 2000s. So we were having tons of repeat cesareans. Now once kind of the hysteria started chilling out and settling down and people said, well, why were we rupturing so much? What was going on? It shouldn't be that high rupture rate. Um, we started realizing that there was a lot of interventions happening during a VDAC process that would lead to the ruptures. For example, uh, misoprostol use, prostaglandin use, and induction, excessive use of Pitocin, all of that were done in overly packed hospitals. Um, and so when in 2010, ACOG came out and they said, well, actually, VDAC is safe and reasonable, but these are more of the protocols we need to follow to lower our rupture rate to make it that safe experience. Um, and so they removed the requirement for immediate anesthesia because they saw that um, it wasn't really effective in having any better outcomes uh, for mom or baby. And all it was doing was limiting access to VDAC. So they removed that requirement. Um, and the guys report came out, which was a report done that looked um, worldwide at studies and saw the safety and effectiveness of VDAC. Um, and so in 2010, we start seeing that um, VDAC rates start going back um, and shifting upwards. In 2017, ACOG revised again their guidelines and they put out um, a very supportive practice bulletin um, in 2017 to continue to reinforce um, our efforts around um, offering vaginal birth after a cesarean. And so today our C-section rate is still at about 31%. It hasn't lowered very much um, in a very long time. Um, and But our VDAC rate is slowly starting to climb. Um, in 2019, it was 13.3%. Um, it takes a few years for, you know, CDC to come out with all of our statistics. We always have a couple year lag there. But 
in some places upwards of 20% of people are you know, going for a vaccinating with a VBAC. And we have a success rate of anywhere between 60 to 80% um, for those who do labor after a cesarean that they are ending in a vaginal birth, which is wild. When you put it into perspective that a first time birthing person has a chance at 30% chance of a C-section, that if your provider has that 80% chance at a VBAC, that a VBACer has a higher chance at a vaginal birth than a first time person. And so it's just crazy. You can feel even more confident after your C-section than you did with your very first baby because uh, your stats are even higher. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know that, and I'm sure you've heard that, you know, once ACOG releases a guideline, which they released that, what, it's in 2010, they removed the guideline about anesthesia um, and then published uh, in 2017, about the practice of vaginal birth after a C-section. And we both know that even when they release those articles, how long is it gonna take for it to become policy in the hospitals? And since that was in 2017, we may not actually see what the new rates are until 2027. So, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we, we've got some time um, and hopefully these rates will go up. Right now, mm -hmm. again, she said 13% is our VBAC rate with a success rate of 60 to 80%. But there are people who still now believe once a C-section, always a C-section. So we've got a lot of catching up to do, even though in 2017, ACOG released some um, great guidelines on um, how moms can have a VBAC and what is best practice for the hospitals. But Again, it takes time for it to reach the hospitals and for it to become policy, right? <laughs> yeah. And in that 2017 guideline, they even mentioned about the VBA2C, um, that after having a second cesarean, that you are still eligible. And I think you have a lot of providers that are like, oh, I'll allow you to attempt to be back after one, but if you have two, I'm out. Um, and that's just not what that's not what's in the recommendation so it'll be exciting as you said to see as these years play out how how the calming down from the yes. 90s <laughs> and, and embracing the new um guidelines from 2017 2010 uh how yeah. that plays out yeah. absolutely absolutely and i know in my area there's um, a lot of the doctors will let you be back after one C-section, but two, you're going to get a little bit of pushback, and any more than that, it's an absolute no. Uh, there is one very well-known uh, VBAC doctor here in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, his name is Dr. Setzer, and he is known for doing all the VBACs here, um, three, four, um, I think four is the most <laughs> that he's done. Um, so we're we're pretty lucky to have him in our area, who is a great advocate to uh, do VBACs, and you know, and he's a doctor, so he can you know chat with other doctors about the things that he's done. So, but man, do we have a lot of catching up to do? Just like you said, absolutely. So knowing that history, we can then take a look at the statistics. Um, I have said the word rupture like a few times already. I think you can't get through a VBAC training without at least addressing the elephant in the room. That's what everybody is worried about when it comes to VBAC. So let's take a look at what are your chances. And that, because it is a very real um, uh, experience that nobody would want or prefer to have happen. Um, but there's also very real risks to repeat cesareans as well. No matter how common they are, um, it does still have increased risk. So I just want to put it out here that a vaginal birth after cesarean is simply just a labor with a, a normal labor with a uterus that has a scar with the only increased risk from a quote unquote normal vaginal birth being this potential uterine rupture but also that each VBAC that you have has protective effects on future labors and birth. Meaning once you VDAC the first time, your risk of a uterine rupture goes down to the next one and down to the next one. You're protecting your future birth by having each VDAC that you have. So um, the risk of uterine rupture is cited anywhere from 0.4% to 1.1% 1 .1 
of labors after cesarean. That is with a, uh, the 0.4% is with a spontaneous labor. The 1.1% is if you add Pitocin into the induction. Um, about 2% risk if you have prostaglandins and 6% risk if you use Cytotec or Mysoprostol during labor, which is why we were having those crazy rates of ruptures in the 90s because we didn't see what was causing it with those increased use of prostaglandins, specifically Mysoprostol. So typically now we know that it's just not going to be in the best interest of the client to offer those medications. So as you can see, the less amount of augmentation you can do, the less amount risk of uterine rupture. Now of the 0.4 to 1.1% of uterine rupture that you would have of those ruptures, only about 3% actually will end in fetal death, right? This is gonna be worst case scenario. This is what nobody wants, of course. So that would look like Two per 10,000 TOLAC um, when the person is at term. Um, and TOLAC, sorry, is an acronym of trial of labor after cesarean. So it is, of course, this absolute risk is extremely low. Right. Um, and, and so not, mm -hmm. go ahead, what are you about to say? I was just going to say, not every uterine rupture is an emergency and not every uterine rupture ends in someone dying. Right, absolutely. And just for even our audience to know, um, when you talked about the different in induction methods, so Pitocin and Mysoprostol and Cytotec, uh, one of the risks of both of those, or all three of those drugs is uterine rupture. So mm -hmm. when we kind of add that to the mix, that is why you're seeing that increase um, mm -hmm risk of having uterine rupture because those drugs already come with that risk. So, um, but even so, um, that you can see how low um, those rates really are. So a, a very common saying we hear from um, a lot of providers about VBACs is two times, was it two times likely to uterine rupture? Yeah. Is what I've been hearing. <laughs> So when you say two times, we're like, okay, what what are those number, numbers looking like? So, you know, 0.4%, we're looking at 0.8%, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so kind of putting those numbers in perspective. Mm -hmm. Right, because just like you said, uterine rupture is a risk of literally any time the uterus is contracting. So any labor does come with a risk of uterine rupture adding these medications even to a normal uterine or normal labor is going to increase risk of uterine rupture. And there's just that marginal increase if there's a scar on the uterus because you're putting stress on it. Um, on the bottom half of that slide, there was uh, the risk of um, a repeat C-section. So with a repeat C-section, the, the biggest risk here, and I'm gonna go through a couple that are on the slides, but the biggest risk that you would want to be looking out for is placenta accreta, which is when your placenta is actually being formed within the layers of your uterus. Um, it rises with each cesarean. So after your first cesarean, your risk of placenta accreta is about 0.31%, which is a very similar starting risk as that uterine rupture at 0.4, right? 0 0.31, 0 0.4 are very similar um, risk profiles. Now, after each cesarean that you have, after your fourth cesarean, your risk goes all the way up from placenta accreta to 6.74%. Um, and so this is where you'll want to take into consideration how large of a family do I want? How many kids am I hoping for? Because each time your risk does increase. So after one C-section, it's 0.31%, and after four, it's 6.74%. And the maternal death rate with placenta accreta is actually 6%. So there is the, the risk for uterine rupture here of fetal death is 3% of the ruptures. The risk for maternal death with placenta accreta is 6% of those with an accreta. So a repeat cesarean carries cumulative risks of surgical complications and placental abnormalities for future birth. So it's, it has the inverse relationship of your risk profile for future births as a VBAC. A VBAC, the risk for your first VBAC, the risk profile is a little bit higher and goes down with each VBAC you have. Where the C-section, the repeat risk profile starts a little bit lower, but actually rises with each one that you have. 
So it's an inverse relationship. Repeat C-section um, has a risk of hysterectomy at about 0.42%, a risk of blood transfusion, of course, placental abnormalities, um, other surgical complications, dense adhesions are about 21.5% risk. Um, and the maternal death rate uh, for repeat cesarean is 9.6 per 100,000, um, whereas the risk of hysterectomy blood transfusions are lower with a VBAC. And of course, a VBAC is not going to carry any of the surgical um, complication risk factors. Wow. Those are some amazing facts and amazing details. Um, and we're not giving this information to scare anyone. Um, but we really want to make sure that you understand all risk involved with any of these procedures so that you can make the best choice for you and your baby. Um, that is our ultimate goal is to be educators um, and, you know, tell the truth so that you can do take that truth and do what you feel is best. Um, but these are definitely fascinating statistics uh, when it comes to comparing both VBACs and um, doing repeat, repeat C-sections. Um, and as a mom who's had two C-sections, um, I actually did, um, I had a repeat placenta previa with my second, uh, my, with my third baby, um, and I did have higher bleeding, um, and it was due to the C-section, which is scary. So I definitely, after my, um, <laughs> with my fourth one, I'm like, okay, this is, <laughs> we're gonna try our hardest to do this. <laughs> So fascinating. All right, moving on to the VBAC birth team. Yeah. Oh, actually, I don't know if you're going to go into it, but did you mention uh, the different incisions as well? Or are you yeah. Uh-huh. So that, yeah, we can, so there are different types of incisions. So most people, if you look at your cesarean scar, most people are going to have that low bikini line, superficial scar, um, but what's important is knowing what your uterine scar is. Um, and so the safest scar would be one that is a horizontal scar. If you have vertical or T-line incisions, um, your risk of ruptures will be higher. So it is important to have looked through your op report um, and have that information as part of your decision making on what is your risk profile look like with either of these births. Um, and then, of course, the type of suturing staples, like, I don't know if anybody is still using staples anymore. They shouldn't be, but if they are, ooh. Um, but doing that, you know, double layer stitching is really great. You want a nice, strong uterine repair if you do have a suturing. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So for who should be on your VBAC birth team, the accessibility to VBACing your options, your likelihood for success can vary wildly depending on who you surround yourself with. So let's get into the difference between tolerant or a supportive provider. A VDAC tolerant provider may have restrictive policies on gestational length. You can VDAC as long as you give birth before your due date or as long as you give birth before 41 weeks. Otherwise, we're going to section. If they use the VDAC calculator to determine eligibility, can you use the VBAC calculator to maybe get some information for your own, you know, it, could it be a good piece of conversational tool? Sure, maybe. Um, should it be a black and white, you can VBAC, but you cannot? No. And if your provider is using it in that way, then that would be a sign that they're not truly supportive of VBAC. If they only lead or ever talk about the risks of VBACing and don't talk with you about the risks of a repeat C-section. They're not supportive. If they use the term TOLAC exclusively, which is again trial of labor after a cesarean, if all if they keep using that, well, we'll let you we'll let you try the labor and see what happens, they're probably not as confident in, in the process as they need to be to support you, especially if variations of normals come up in labor. They're like, well, you tried, it's just not happening. If they will not induce you as a VDAC, they're not following the evidence. If they work in a practice with non-supportive partners, um, then that is going to lower your likelihood of success, especially if you are with a rotational practice where you might not get your VDAC supportive doctor 
or midwife on shift. Um, if somebody else is going to have the potential of coming in and not supporting you, then that's maybe a person that you want to reconsider. Um, or if they are really insistent on growth scans or weight restriction, BMI, things like that, if they are scared of big babies, um, especially on VDAC, then they may not be the most supportive provider for you. And then what does a VDAC supportive provider look like? That their first encouragement is a VDAC. That's what ACOG recommends, that you are offered that first. Um, so they should be leading with the success and the health benefits of a VDAC. As long as their cesarean rate is actually lower than average, especially their primary cesarean rate. They should know their VDAC rate, and we should want it somewhere between 60 and 80% success and above 20% of who attempts it. Um, so we want to be in those optimal ranges there. But they support being past due and not having the restriction on, on how many weeks you get to. That they will induce if needed instead of saying you have to go into spontaneous labor or you're automatically a C-section. There's a middle of the road here where we can safely induce if needed um, that doesn't make you have to have a C-section. That they value your individualized care and value. That's where the VDAC calculator misses the mark. The VDAC calculator is trying to make you a math equation when we are human beings with history, with a story to tell, with values. And we want our provider to take that in consideration over just numbers that we can plug in and, and try to estimate. And that they encourage you hiring a doula. If we want to lower cesarean rates, this is one of the easiest, most accessible ways of doing that. And your provider should be fully on board. That would be a great supportive feedback provider. Absolutely. Um, and one note about the VBAC calculator um, that has come up recently, and I, they actually, I believe, are coming out with a new one or have come out with a new one, but there is a big uproar um, because the VBAC calculator uh, determined that Black women would have a less success rate um, than their white counterparts, which was a huge problem because race doesn't play a factor in their success with a VBAC. So um, I know they were working on um, changing that, but even still, it's really, really important that we do have that individualized care, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you could have a whole nother podcast on how racism <laughs> plays part in the medical industrial complex. Um, dang, yes. you can spend a whole hour there. <laughs> yeah, I'm so Absolutely. glad that they uh, have, have taken that out because that's just ridiculous. Yes. Okay, so the next thing I think that I would encourage you to do if you are planning a VDAC is body work. So much of labor progression is influenced by positioning, balance, and yielding fascia. Um, and so some of the body work that I would consider, there's three pieces of body work that I would consider putting into your prenatal prep before VDAC. And this is really any birth. I encourage all of my clients, um, but especially VDAC, and especially if your first VDAC was due to potentially like failure to progress, and then when you had your cesarean, you found out the baby was asynclitic and posterior. Um, this is never to place blame on anyone or their bodies, or you, it's your fault that your baby was in that position. Sometimes babies do what babies gonna do. But we know that incorporating these three things into your practice um, and your prenatal care is gonna set you up with a higher chance of an optimally positioned baby. And that would be chiropractic care, specifically done by a Webster certified um, uh, chiropractor. Pelvic floor therapy. Friends, I think we're starting to get a little bit more on the pelvic floor therapy postpartum train and like accepting that we need that and in, in postpartum. But ladies, like if you're having a baby, do this before the baby. We have so much pelvic floor dysfunction in our country, so much over tense pelvic floors. And um, I think when we use our like pelvis models and childbirth education, and we are only showing the bony structures that baby has to navigate, we forget to emphasize how much uh, muscles baby also has to navigate 
and how the muscles and the fascia and the ligaments of your pelvic floor actually have to be really soft and yielding for baby to be able to come through that too. And pelvic floor therapy prenatally is going to help number one identify and then give you treatment options so that your pelvic floor is really healthy, balanced, and well for this baby to come through. And last is massage therapy. Massage therapy is more than just uh, self-care spa day, I need it to relax. Um, truly, over time, as you get uh, massage on a regular basis, your muscles learn from that chronic stress how to decompress. And when we have um, you know, our muscles being nice and relaxed, we don't have any um, out of balance, either elongated or stretched muscles. We also don't have any that have constricted and are now shorter then they need to be pulling our pelvis out of alignment. But also, yes, it feels really good. Releasing, it's a good stress relief. Um, it helps with our parasympathetic nervous system, being able to regulate our stress response. So if you could take three types of body work, I could encourage you to do like a million other ones too, but these three would be my top three. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks. And um, I'm going to add uh, a couple of links um, to Spinning Babies as well. So you guys can take a look at that. Um, they have a lot of information about body work and um, balancing uh, your uh, fascia, your muscles, your everything. So they talk a lot about, um, you know, balancing and releasing and things like that. So it's a really good resource. And I'll put that link in uh the comments in the description. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. All right. And then the fourth step to, to preparing for that VDAC is mentally. So planning for a VDAC comes with a different set of emotional and mental hurdles, if you will, to work through than preparing for either a second vaginal birth or even your first birth. We have to process our trauma response and confidence all need to be cultivated with support. So here are some um, questions that I would encourage you to reflect on to help prepare yourself for a VDAC. So in, we want to reflect on that first story. When I work with VDAC clients, I find so often that they are comparing or projecting their first birth or their cesarean birth onto what's to come with this next birth. And so part of processing your birth story is we want to identify what went quote unquote wrong. What was the reason for the cesarean, right? How did that feel in that moment when you went from either pregnant and then having to plan a cesarean or laboring and then ending in a cesarean? How did that feel? What emotions did you feel? Can you identify those now? You're allowed to love your baby and grieve parts of your birth. Both things can exist, right? Um, but we have to acknowledge that. And I think so many people feel like they just have to be so grateful for their cesarean because it's often spun back to you as this was just the only way to save your baby or this was just your only option. Like for your chance, placenta previa. Yeah, that's a very legitimate reason for a C-section. Baby is not coming out with the placentas in front of it. So how did that feel, you know? And so you don't have to necessarily, you have a different set of emotions to work through than laboring 50 hours and ending in a C-section. So everybody just needs to identify what emotions did I actually process um, when it came to choosing cesarean birth. Also, what did you love about your first birth? If you have a lot of birth trauma, it can sometimes be helpful to see if you can identify anything that was positive at all. Um, because it helps you to identify, you know, what is within your control, too. So we have to be able to learn to control what we can control and release the rest, right, when we're, when we're processing our birth. What was within our control? What was not within our control? And then coming up to this next birth, again, what is in my control? What can I do? And again, that's your, your body work, your provider choices, um, your place of birth. All of those things are what you can control. How labor actually plays out is not always within our control. How is this story different? So getting to that breakthrough point of 
perceiving your cesarean birth to be its own experience and letting this birth be its own experience. Um, and lastly, what support do I have this time? Making sure that if there were gaps in support, whether that was via, I didn't have a doula before, or maybe you had the best doula ever, and so that's a consistent piece of care, but maybe it was the provider where the gap of support was, or maybe it was your partner where the gap of support was. Identifying if there was any gaps of support and who and how can you surround yourself with even more support this second time around. Um, I encourage that question for any type of second, third, fourth time parent, because every time you have another child, your level of support just increases. Your need for support increases, regardless of it, you had a vaginal birth and this is just your second child. Let's look and make sure that if there were any gaps of support for your first baby, we have even more for your next one. Awesome. And the last part of prepping for that VDAC is planning for all of it. <laughs> so we want to make birth plans for a spontaneous labor. We want to make birth plans for induction. And we want to make birth plans for family-centered cesareans. Just because you plan for something does not increase the likelihood of it happening. So just because you walk in with a good piece of paper, well-thought-out family-centered cesarean plan does not mean you just jinxed yourself into having a cesarean. It means that you have found a provider that will support the type of cesarean birth you're hoping for if that's the route, if that is this baby's birth story. Um, it also means that if you end up do needing an induction, that you have thought this out and spoken with a provider and have a provider who will not just send you to the OR, but that will ride this out with you and be safe and comfortable with their methods of induction and patience and all of that when it comes to a VDAC, we gotta take things slow because we don't wanna put additional stress on the uterus. And so we need to have a bit more patience for a VDAC induction than a non-VDAC induction. Um, and then of course, plan A, write that down, put your ideal birth down and, and love on that and visualize that and you know believe into that. But we have all of our options, it's just a great, processing um, and foundational setting yourself up for success um, exercise to do by creating all of these birth plans. So some of your options in a gentle or um, family-centered cesarean would include choice of music in the OR or requesting no music and no additional or unnecessary conversations. If you want your voice to be the first voice that baby hears, you can ask for that. Clear screen or no lowered screen, like a drop screen um, or drape. Having the lights dimmed, except for, of course, the surgical lights. You want them to see what they're doing when they are uh, inside of you with scalpel. So they will have lights, but the rest of the room can be uh, dimmed. Maternal assisted delivery. So um, the person who's having the C-section is able to go grab their baby and bring them to their chest themselves after the, the doctor has um, had baby born to the incision. Vaginal feeding is the process of um, taking a swab from the vaginal canal and swabbing it inside baby's cheek. Uh, we have some new emerging research on this for potential health benefits for baby's microbiome by doing that, by giving them that good bacteria that they would have otherwise gotten through the vaginal canal. Delayed cord clamping absolutely still an option with cesarean birth, um, and some would argue even more beneficial in cesarean birth. Slowly bringing baby through the incision, similar to a vaginal birth, um, kind of giving them that the lung squeeze, the physiological transition between intra and extra uterine life through doing that process slowly. Baby being brought to mom immediately and getting that into skin while incision is closed. Your dreams of the golden hour don't have to be thrown out of the window. And you can still get all those good health benefits. And I think there's one more spot here. Yeah, you can initiate breastfeeding in the OR. You can ask for monitors to be placed strategically to allow freedom to move your arms and have space for skin to skin. You can request the anesthesia without the uh, sedatives. 
So sometimes you'll get some anti-anxiety medication. Um, if you feel like that would be helpful for you, then great, they're, they're available. Um, but you can also speak with your doctor if that's something that you feel you've had you know, poor reactions to in the past, or if you just want to be a little bit more alert, you can request that you're not given those as well. So you want to talk with them about what they, what medications they often, and what is their standard to give, and um, make sure that it aligns with what you're wanting out of your experience. Amazing. Yeah, and I wanted to go back to skin to skin. Um, I'm a kangaroo, so we talk a we talk a lot with parents and the benefits of skin to skin and how we can make the transition from birth to world um, easier transition for baby. Not even including the benefits of the microbiome, which we she briefly just talked about. Um, but sometimes you will get a little bit of pushback with the skin to skin. Um, I'm not sure in your area, Emily, but I know definitely in my area, um, there could be quite a bit of pushback on getting baby skin to skin. And usually it's because um, they're worried about having an extra nurse there to provide skin to skin. Um, so if that does come up, if there's a little bit of pushback on that, well, one, make sure you talk, make sure it's on your birth plan and talk with your provider. Um, we have a rotation system here in Cleveland, Ohio, so most people don't end up with their provider in, um, once they go into labor and delivery, but um, make sure whoever your support person is knows this is what you want. Do you want that skin to skin with your baby? And then if you have to go into the OR, your support person or you um, speaks up and reminds them, hey, we want skin to skin with this baby. Um, and dad or whoever your support person is can hold that baby skin to skin on your chest. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that is an option for you. Um, and if, you know, if you really don't want to try to like talk, you know, you know, convince them to do the skin to skin on mom with a C-section, um, dad can do it or whoever that support person is can do skin to skin with baby while mom is recovering. So those are a few options um, if you are finding that there is a little bit of pushback um, to get that skin to skin with baby. And I even see it with delayed cord clamping. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> um, there is sometimes a little bit of pushback, but again, having your support person speak up for you or your doula, but we sometimes your doula can't be there um, depending on the hospital and who the anesthesiologist is. So if your partner, whoever your support person is gonna be, knows that you want delayed cord clamping, having them speak up and remind the hospital staff that is something that you want. So yeah, awesome. That's why these conversations are just so dang important to have beforehand. Like my whole thing with, with birth trauma is just like, it's managing expectations. <laughs> you can't go in with a family centered cesarean birth plan with all of these things and then just expect that the provider, the hospital staff are just going to do it for you because that's what you have written down. Um, we want to go into all of our births knowing, again, that our providers in our place of location of birth is aligned with what we're wanting in all cases. And that way, we don't feel blindsided when things happen or don't happen, and we can just have a realistic understanding of how this is going to go down. Absolutely. Exactly. So. If you have a doula, going over those questions with your doula, um, your doula can actually help you come up with some questions to ask your provider. Or if you're taking a childbirth class, asking your childbirth educator, what kind of questions should I ask my provider? Um, and one topic that I wanted us to kind of talk about was, and this could also be a whole nother podcast, um, but I know we could both cover it briefly. But if a mom wants a home birth and she's a feedback mom, what are some suggestions that you would offer her if that's what she wanted? Yeah. So um, as far as official recommendations, um, an ACOG's practice bulletin, if that is what holds most weight for you, um, you will see that it does say that home birth would be a contraindication. Um, so that's what the official ACOG recommendation is. Now, ACOG is not um, law, and um, a person's values, priorities, all in autonomy is always going to trump that. And so um, there are, again, we talked about 
the, the safety of vaginal birth and uh, of after cesarean. And so a home birth does happen all the time. Um, I've been to multiple. So what, what I would encourage you to do is finding your midwife and making sure, number one, that they are experienced in vaginal birth after cesarean, that you have um, plans in place for transfer, which of course, if you're home birthing, is going to be a part of your care. If you're being cared for by a good, thorough midwife, there will be talk about what happens when, when do we make these types of calls? Where do we go? What does that process look like for a transfer? Um, and then, you know, encouraging you to also be aware and understanding of what the signs of a uterine rupture would be and your midwife that she can right off the bat when you're interviewing that she can just verbalize those right away. You don't want to be her first feedback client probably. Um, so making sure that she is also well-versed in the signs um, and the markers of that, um, being confident again in your safety and same thing, having your body work, doing your mental emotional prep, planning for all of your options. Um, but yes, both certified professional midwives and certified nurse midwives um, will sometimes accept these VBAC clients at home, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And so VBAC um, is an option, definitely, at a home birth. And so everything that we just covered today, keep all that stuff in mind. And then when you're choosing that professional midwife, um, you know, asking her set the same questions um, about you know, how she supports uh, VBACs and, um, you know, how many births has she attended that are VBACs um, and just making sure that you get all the information, you know your risk, and then you have a backup plan. So mm -hmm. a lot of times, and which I'm sure Emily also do when I am working with clients, especially I work with a lot of VBAC clients because that's, I work, my specialty is uh, high-risk patients or high-risk high uh, pregnant mothers. So I, a lot of times what I do is that we'll talk about Okay, so let's create a birth plan for your home birth, or let's plan, let's make a birth plan for your, you know, TOLAC, let's do that. And then let's make a birth plan for your C-section as well. Mm -hmm. So that there are no surprises to you. And if something comes up, you already know what the next steps are. Absolutely. So I think it's really cool that we had to reschedule this. <laughs> I know <laughs> we had to reschedule this uh, this uh, podcast, and um, because we had two moms, or both of us had our clients that were both the back moms going mm -hmm. to labor the same day. <laughs> yeah, and well, I had two. I don't know if you remembered, I was coming out of a V back um, yes. Sunday night in the Monday morning, and then your client, your V back, went into labor Monday, and mine into labor Monday night, second VBAC. So that was three VBACs in one week between the two yep. of us. It was, it, was, it, was so well. it was a good week, yeah. And um, if you want, like, briefly share your experience, um, you don't have to share all the details, but yeah, what are some takeaways from, like, your VBACs that you would love, like, use as tips for other people? Oh, that's such a good question, Angel. Yeah, I'm sorry, I just threw you away. <laughs> I would say, I would say, so I have had home birth VBACs that stay home. I have had home birth VBACs that we have transferred into hospitals for various reasons. And I have had planned hospital VBACs. Um, and in all three of the cases, that emotional piece was crucial. Um, for like my home birth feedback, the emotional breakthrough and the strength that she found was that staying home and like not using any epidural or pain management in that way. That was so empowering for her. My other feedback, when her fears were creeping in, she had been uh, in her first birth had pushed for almost five hours after having no epidural and then got the epidural after that, and then still ended up in a cesarean um, right before that. And so we actually, as part of our planning, um, she was fully capable, totally, totally capable of doing an unmedicated birth again the second time. Um, and we kind of went in there with, with kind of that plan. But when, as we got closer to pushing, it was actually so relieving and gave her so much more confidence 
to get her epidural prior to the pushing process because she had that fear of I'm going to do this for four or five hours completely unmedicated. I want to take this tool, use this tool, get my rest, feel calmer going into the pushing phase. And girlfriend pushed for like less than an hour. Like it was so good. Um, and so I kind of learn in each of these births that um, identifying like what what is the biggest roadblock for you? What can come up that's going to be your biggest roadblock? What tools do we have to be able to overcome that? Um, so that, yeah, you have your pathway to success. So really that would be kind of my biggest takeaway. Where, what are you most scared of happening again? Yeah. Um, and what can we do? What is actually within our control to work around that? Not being able, not being afraid to use all of the tools that we want or need, um, but knowing that you can do this and that the numbers are on your side. You are yeah. most likely going to have this feedback. <laughs> I love that. And that is so true. And it's so important. I feel like if you don't take anything out of this whole entire session that we've done today, that the mental and emotional work is probably going to be the most important thing. Um, mm -hmm. uh, doing understanding what happened in your previous birth and how mm -hmm. you can prepare for even the possibility of that happening again. Um, so that mental and emotional work definitely definitely important um and if you have a doula working through those things with your doula and if you don't have a doula working with those through those things with someone that you trust um mm -hmm. and that can support you um with your birth so that's really important i want you all to really just take that um take all the information that you've received today ask those questions um, do the preparation so that you can have a successful birth, whether it's a vaginal birth after a C-section or not. Um, we want you to have a very empowering birth where you feel like you did everything that you could to achieve those goals. Um, so it's so, so important. Um, and my VBAC went really well. Um, and I would say that my biggest takeaway from that birth um, is I, for, from all the births actually that I've done. So I've done um hospital and home births uh that were VBAC uh and I really I have seen that partner support is a really big factor um with <laughs> your success in in uh I wouldn't say your success but in your belief um system as well when it comes to having that VBAC so um, making sure that your partner understands you know and can has the ability to ask those questions and that your partner also does that mental work because those Burst, um, those hard births, those traumatic births affect them as well. So making sure that they also do that mental uh, preparation and that emotional preparation um, going into your feedback as well. Awesome. All right, Emily. So we're coming to a close. It's, wow, that time just flew by. And thank you for the amazing slide. It is beautiful. I love it. Uh, so where can we find you on the World Wide Web? Where on these internet streets? Thank you to the Black Moon Life for that. Um, but uh, I love that she said that in the internet streets. You can find me on Instagram um, at Serving Tomorrow. I recently started TikTok. Don't know what I'm doing, but if that is fun for y'all, um, I'm also at Serving Tomorrow um, Birth Baby on TikTok. Um, I also put out lots of virtual offerings to people as they are preparing for their birth and postpartum experiences. And um, you can find all of those in my Instagram bio. Um, lots of online guides on your third trimester, how to practice for birth, ways to prepare, actual labor, hands-on tools, positionings, all of that, um, and postpartum as well, uh, postpartum recovery, fourth trimester. So definitely check out those guides. And I do offer virtual support as well. So again, I'm in person in the DFW, Texas area, but maybe you don't need a doula or don't have the uh, means for a doula um, and you just want some virtual support informationally, emotionally, somebody to just check in with you know, every month and, and have in your corner. I do offer that as well. And I'd be love, love, love to support people in as many different as I can. So yeah, I'm happy to connect with everybody at any time. 
Sounds awesome. And I'm going to link her information in the description below so you guys can find her on Instagram, TikTok, and she has an amazing okay. and beautiful uh, website that you can also check out. Um, and just so everyone knows, I have a upcoming uh, microbirth class that's coming up. We've talked a little bit about the microbiome and this course um, and this webinar and podcast. So we've talked a little bit about that. Um, that's going to be June 18th. So if you guys are interested in learning more about you know, the microbiome of your baby and how we can use birth as a way to set your baby up for a long-term health, um, you guys can check that out and I'll put the link in the description as well. So uh, again, thank you, Emily. You have been amazing and so informative. Um, and we shall just see everybody else later. Sounds good. Bye, Angel. Thanks for having me. Bye. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed making it. Our journey doesn't need to end here. To find out more information about all things pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, head to my website, www.fruitofthewombbirth.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget to hit that bell button to get alerts on any new episodes. And if you really like what you're hearing, give this podcast a five-star rating. Can't wait to see you in the next episode.